Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, investing in local communities, economies, and a sustainable future. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated. Member SIPC. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. First, Bill Lee joining us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studios uh, in New York, Managing Director and Head of North American Economics uh, at City. Give us a sense of how you've processed all of the Fed speak uh, this week, all of the, the comments from uh, various members of the, of the Federal Reserve. You know, I think this is probably the best example of the success of Fed talk, right? I mean, they were out of the picture uh, with probabilities of like 20 or 30 just about a week or two weeks ago. And now with the, this chorus of people talking things up, um, and, and what's remarkable about it is they're doing it without hard data, right? They're, they're basing almost all of this up, uh, upbeat stuff on the prospect of fiscal policy, which we learned nothing about during the speech, right? And the fact that sentiment data is on a high. And we have a divergence between sentiment data and real data. So my real question is, has the Fed changed its policy rule? Is it really basing monetary policy now on sentiment data and, or putting at least putting more weight on it and somehow de- saying that sentiment data is a good predictor of real data. That's a whole new economic model. And if that's the case, they should start to show us some research that says, you know, the world should look at sentiment data. And that I have yet to see. What did you make of that speech uh, on, on Tuesday night? Our colleague Michael McKee uh, saying when we look at the markets, when you look at what's happening here with, with Fed funds futures, you can attribute all of that. Uh, to what's been happening with with these Fed policymakers, not with what the president had to say. You agree with that? I, I think what the, what the president showed was a, a very thematic speech, and that was great for his audience. But what scared me as an analyst and as an economist is, where are the plans that we're supposed to get for the 20% corporate tax rate, maybe 15 percent. What uh, what are you going to do to pay for it? Those details are not appropriate for that kind of speech, but at least a hint to say, here's the framework that we're going to try to sell you coming up. I think what it shows is that there's a lot of dissension within the Republican Party. And that makes me worried that the timetable for corporate tax reform and all of the so-called fiscal reforms may actually be pushed back to even beyond 2018. Um, and that's what scares me. If I'm a Fed policymaker, I'm looking at the buffet of economic data uh, before me. What's missing? What's not on the table? What, what's, what could possibly keep them from raising rates here uh, about, in March? How about inflation? Uh-huh. <laughs> All right. I mean, you're supposed to say I'm worried about inflation, but the latest PCE reading was what? Exactly 1.7 year on year. And has that changed? It's been the same 1.7 for the last six months. So so to say that, wow, we are behind the curve or worried that we should normalize policy on a, at, at, a, at at least a more accelerated pace than what the market thought just a few few weeks ago, then you got to right. say, what has changed in my mind? What has changed my assessment? Right. And the hard data are not giving it to help me. Help young Gura. <laughs> and I'll put this chart out, folks. <laughs> Billy, help young Gura with an era where all we ever said was measured. We were measured. Yes. We were safe. We were measured. Alan Greenspan said we were measured. Boy, that got us in trouble. Mm. Why can't we just do one and done? I, I, Arthur Burns would have done one and done. Well, now we're measured. We have vectors. Help. Because we, we went to the bad place. Um, and, and yes, we had to get to a bad place, meaning zero rates because of the crisis. But now, how, many, how, how long has it been since the crisis? A decade? And, and we're still at near zero rates. That's why we can't do one and done. So we should be at 
two, maybe even two and a half to three. So you're saying five and done. Well, we should we should be at a higher place, but we can't get there because of the way the measured pace that they've taken. And they told us we're data dependent. So now how do we get from here to there? And in the review the for our pop quiz here at the end of the show, oh Bill Lee of Citigroup just told us they have soft data, but not hard data, right? Exactly. I know that the, the employment data we're going to get here comes David, parallel. you don't have I'm to sorry, take the pop my quiz. Notes. You don't my, have to I'm, take the pop I scribble quiz. my notes here to, to my right. you got a gym excuse. <laughs> get that all basket out of it. Uh, Bill Lee, I know we get this uh, this job report perilously close to when we're going to get this Fed decision. Does that matter? How much does it matter, the proximity of these two these two events? And, and well, it's because it's in the quiet period, they can't talk about it. Right. But let's face it. If you let one data point push you around, that's not the Fed that I know. That's not the Fed that has the credibility to say that we're, we're, we're analyzing the data and looking at the trends and not the noise. And, and f besides, the data in the labor market has actually been very good. We've been getting much higher employment numbers than would be consistent with a low growth regime, which says what? We've got crappy productivity, right? <laughs> and and so so in that world, right, we, we, we can't just start moving markets because of sentiment and feelings data. It really has to be based on what has changed in our in our projection of inflation trajectory to justify pulling forward uh, to, to okay, March. But even if the level of PCE is nowhere near Cleveland CPI, we showed that chart yesterday, folks. Mm -hmm. I promise I'll do it tomorrow on television and I will get it out on Twitter. It's a great CPI chart. But do these people manage to the data point, the present data point, or do they manage to the vector, the inertial force of inflation? You like this physics, David? It's incredible. It's physics Thursday. <laughs> Wearing down the graph. Exactly, like Tom. And, 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 and you can't get a nerdy engineer like me started on this talk. But, but if you start managing to the data point, then you're going to be moved around by the data. You have to manage the underlying process. You've got to manage to the process and the vector, And, and the what trend. has happened to the process? Nothing. Yes, we have improvements. Yes, we have more confidence when we're, we're going to get there. But are we going to get there faster? What's your run rate and, on GDP right now? Frame that for us. We got a wide dispersion here right now. The, the GDP now accounting estimates are showing first quarter at below two. Hmm. Yeah, but what about twelve months forward? What's uh, the Citigroup guesstimate? We 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 are at, at the two and a quarter. Um, two and a quarter. You could, gloomy, Dave. Gloomy. <laughs> well, uh, that's pretty good considering we we're, we don't have a but one no. handle, right? But certainly uh, for next year, we're anticipating a two six two seven because we're anticipating a half point pop from fiscal policy. Now, as we said earlier, given the speech that we just heard and no plan in sight, that timing may actually be pushed back. Now, what are the markets reacting to? That's what I'm curious about. Why is the stock market at historic new highs? Well, they see deregulation. Mm -hmm. I see that too, right? And they see the prospect of corporate tax reform, the timing of which is uncertain. But is it going to result in CapEx investment or is it going to be yeah, divi dividend stock buybacks? And I, I think it's dividend stock buybacks. I don't buybacks. mean to interrupt, David, but I'm going to. But do they also see new animal spirits and a higher nominal GDP than the gloomsters at Citigroup look for? <laughs> hey, you know, the gloomsters are looking at the real data. And if I were a sentiment kind of guy, I'd say, wow, my animal spirits are going to be pushing things up and I'd be raising my forecast. But lesson learned from modeling uh, too, for too long, the sediment data are not good predictors of real data, and the economy itself – I mean, I, I would love to be mm. – you know, I think – my sentiment says I want to be rich and thin. I'm neither, right? <laughs> 
and and I can't spend. It's radio. We're all rich in things. <laughs> I can't spend unless I have a, a, a paycheck to meet my expenses. So so that's that's the key. You Billy, need the whole data. We'll come back. We'll talk about tax reform. We'll talk about deregulation. But let me ask you just about your, your purview here is North America. But fold this into a global uh, context. I really intended to watch the webcast of uh, Governor Brainerd yesterday, but I crashed hard after staying up so late to watch the president's speech the night before. Read the read the remarks though, and she talks about how she's happy with what's happening in Japan uh, and Europe. What's your sense of how that folds into yeah. to your outlook? Let, let me put back my IMF hat where sure. I did have a global perspective. You know, the global economy is improving. Even the emerging markets have have pushed up their growth rates, but half the increase in emerging market growth is coming about because of the of, of two countries, Russia and Brazil coming out of recession. The rest of emerging markets is kind of meandering along. And when you look at Europe and say, oh my God, Europe has improved so much, we're still talking one handles. We're talking one and a half percent as opposed to 1.2% or maybe 0.9%. Oh. Now that's a massive improvement, yes, but by my books, that's not the kind yeah. of growth that it spurs US or, or anybody's. That's why we love to have you on. State that again. The EM enthusiasm now that Dr. Brainerd sees and others is mostly from Brazil and the Russia. Russia's cyclical recovery. They're coming out of recession, and so sure, that's improved the emerging markets. But the rest of the emerging markets— But it's markets, not the Philippines. It's not Mexico. It's not China. They it's are, not They Botswana. are meandering along at the same pace, slightly better, because, um, because the commodity world has come back a little bit, right? I mean, uh, but really, the key there is China. The key, where are you going to get this, folks? The inside of Bill Lee is Citigroup. That was brilliant on Brazil and Russia, plus Physics Thursday. I mean, it's just— <laughs> David, it's enough to put David. It's enough. I'm to gonna put, run back to my desk and get the calculator. I left yeah, why you Yen's in there producing? I think he's nodding off asleep right now. With us is William Lee, for years at the International Monetary Fund, now at Citigroup, and Bill, you've done six pages on the border tax. What's your value add in the executive summary? What part of the debate is what we need to focus on so that we can determine the value? of an import tax. I'm trying to take the debate out of the academic pinhead world of instantaneous adjustments because the border tax has been sold as a good source of revenue for paying for tax for, for tax cuts and, and tax reform in general. So why don't we use it? Well, it's because it's distorting. It's going to mess up the, 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 the imports and exports, subsidizing exports, uh, 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 shutting off imports, but the the advocates like Feldstein, uh, Auerbach, and Holtz, they can say, don't worry, because that dollar is just going to pop up just like that and offset the distortion, and we're going to cut the same world that we have now. What an awful way to sell something to President Trump. Instead, you should tell him, in the real world, that exchange rate takes about four to five years to adjust. And even if you hold monetary policy unchanged, that's still going to take three years to adjust. So for three to five years, you've got a situation where you can actually shut down imports a bit, promote exports, con concentrate production here in the U.S., get the jobs you want that make America better again. Now, isn't that the line you should be using on President Trump instead of the hour back, Holtz Aikens lines that's saying, no, nothing's going to change, but you get get more money. But, and President Trump says, I don't love it because it's way too complex. No kidding. Not only is it complex, it doesn't work that way. It works in a textbook. And when I used to teach at Columbia, I talk about incipient increases uh -huh. in, the, in, in, in the balance of payments that cause an instantaneous exchange rate jump. We no longer have that. We have FX desks. We have importers. We have exporters. We have not one good, but a lot of goods with different price elasticities. What on earth makes you think that that textbook model is the one you should be using to sell the president? 
on a very important policy move like this. How integral to tax reform is this border adjustment tax? We didn't hear it mentioned in the speech last night when you look at how you might pay for all this stuff. It seems so important. Could you get tax reform without having it involved? We at City actually have our forecast um, going into 2018-2019 without a border tax. But in order to do that and not let the, the budget blow out to like two, 3 or 4 or 5% of GDP, we had to assume that the tax cuts on the corporate side will go down to maybe 25%, not 20 not 15 and we had to go to every cat and dog um, expense and, and, and deduction we could find to shut things down because, quite frankly, that, that tax cut going down to 15 or 20% right. will cost about $1.8 okay. trillion. The border tax gives you more than a trillion. It almost pays for all of that. Let's, let's take two different businesses. Mark Fields has a small car shop called Ford Motor Company. <laughs> There's a guy named Michael Dell in Austin. I, what's he doing? Is he going to buy the Rangers this year? <laughs> I don't know what Michael Dell's doing. Two different worlds. They're all affected by the border tax. What is the price elasticity? What is the responsive thing they should focus on in the next two years? The, of course, Ford, the one thing about autos you know is that they they make stuff and they export stuff in order to get to the final product of that car. That final product may be here located here in the U.S. or it may be located in Mexico, but there's a lot of intra-industry trade. How on earth are you going to be taxing and subsidizing the imports and exports of these of these firms, right? So they're going to have a, a nightmare of an accounting scheme. What about Dell? Now, now Michael Dell, right? <laughs> I, I used to buy his Dell computers when I was in college. I don't know what he's got into now, but he certainly is in the high-tech industry, which is very, very import-intensive for parts, right? And export, Not just Mexico, but Asia. Asia, and, and, and export-intensive for intellectual property. So so we're going to subsidize this intellectual property, which kind of means that even, by the way, a law firm, every law firm is going to have a server in Denmark because they're going to say, I'm an exporting industry. I shouldn't have to pay yeah, but, for my legal services, okay, even though you can get the, get, but, but, the stuff I'm, here in the U.S.? Well said. But on Michael Dell, the assumption is he can raise prices. Absolutely. I don't think he got that memo. <laughs> can he? Can can a Michael Dell raise prices? If he does, his competitor called the you know the Taiwanese and 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 even the Chinese manufacturers are going to say we're going to sell things and undercut you. So don't you even yeah. dare raise his, prices, his, uh, David. His competitors, Wang Labs. I see. Just okay. <laughs> named, named from another time and. My God, compliance guys prevent me from using names. There you go. There. No, good <laughs> lucky for you. Mine wish they could prevent me. <laughs> Bill Lee, thank you so much. Great Always brilliant yeah. with Citigroup um, this morning. Nice on the luck. border tax, we protect the copyright of all of our guests. We're not going to send you out his um, lovely, lovely six-page dissertation on the border tax. Get that through your Citibank representative as well. doing physics earlier, David Gura. Yeah. It's very good to do Thursday physics. We're doing vectors and inertial momentum. So let's do something more boring. Fanny Freddy. Wouldn't that be good? Why don't you bring in our esteemed guest? Yes, yeah, bring in Jim Milstein here. He is the chief, uh, former chief restructuring officer at the U.S. Department uh, of the Treasury and joins us here uh, in our Bloomberg 1130 studios. Hold, hold on. Uh, in New York. Yeah, go ahead. What the hell is a chief restructuring We're going to get that. We'll, we'll ask that, we'll ask that David, first of all. Out, out, of, uh, out of Washington, D.C. There's one in my house. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> on personal retainer. Describe briefly what you did, what that role does uh, within the Treasury Department. Well, during the financial crisis, the Treasury was responsible for the administration of the TARP program, and we made a number of significant investments in various institutions in the financial sector to make sure that it didn't collapse. And uh, when we 
After those investments were made, yes. uh, somebody had to figure out a way to get out of them. And the, the, the short and, straw was drawn by... And, <laughs> I, <laughs> and, I, and I had, there was a meeting in the Treasury in the Secretary's office, and... Uh, and somebody, somebody has to deal with yes. AIG, and the guys who had been there like three days longer than me all took a step back, and I was left in the yeah, front row. I've got six jokes to make. Oh. Steve Ratner was with us yesterday, yes. but forget about the jokes. AIG showed up, and the tone in the room changed. There were all these issues. I mean, I get it. Yeah. Uh, you had to buy a building in New York City to get Jamie Dimon to take up. We, get all, we all know the history. Right. But the key thing for guys like you is AIG walked in the room, and it was a different conversation. Yeah. What was that like? The uh, you know the difference with AIG. Oh, I mean, the Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy on you know Monday, Monday, September fifteenth. I think AIG was downgraded that day, mm. and as a consequence, um, all of its derivatives book changed in its character mm. overnight, because they had been relying on the credit rating uh, of the parent company to provide their collateral for their derivatives, and so when the downgrade occurred, they had a massive cash call. Uh, a cash call that, you know, really no institution uh, their size with their size derivative book could meet without help from their friends, and their friends were all reeling. Mm. Uh, so a private credit facility couldn't, of the size needed, couldn't be put together. And there was really two choices. Uh, the Fed could have uh, said, I don't know who you are. Don't darken my door. Yeah. Uh, you're on your own. Or the Fed did, could do what it did, which is step in with an emergency loan to ensure that they could perform their obligations in the ordinary course of business. Tom brings up GSEs. Have we heard much in the way of a plan for what the, the government plans to do with uh, Fannie and, and Freddie? Um, you know, there were hints of it. Yeah. Uh, during, right after um, Mnuchin was nominated, uh, I think one of the first things he said was, we're going to think about recapitalizing uh, Fannie and Freddie and ending the conservatorships. He dialed that back a little bit during his confirmation hearings. Um, and said he wants to work with the Senate and the House uh, on, on reform. But, you know, the Senate and the House tried this uh, three years ago. Uh, serious effort led by the, you know, with the Treasury Department, the then Obama Treasury Department. And the, the topic just proved too complicated because there are lots of puts and takes, right? There, there's a, the implied government guarantee. And, you know, if you're going to make that explicit, uh, so as to ensure that we're actually paid for the privilege of guaranteeing all of that mortgage debt, um, then, you know, the quid pro quo is, well, if the government's involved and in putting its balance sheet behind uh, the credit of various homeowner mortgages, then that's a program that should be made widely available to all homeowners. It shouldn't just be rich people with great credit. Uh, and so you're constantly in a tug of war between yeah. the affordable housing mm. folks who say, hey, if we're using the balance sheet of the federal government, this should be a program with public benefit. Okay. Because of time, and we could talk uh, with Mr. Milstein folks four to five hours and just alone to wander through Pan American Airlines, the Disney restructuring of, of, of Euro Disney and all that, your work at Cleary Gottlieb at Lazard, et cetera. But I, I gotta jump forward to how you interpret the regulatory and restructuring zeal of this new administration. Yeah. I mean I mean you're you're not a constitutional law guy. You're you're more in the regulation realm, but interpret for us what you presume is to come. Yeah. So um you know, there's a playbook that um uh the Heritage Foundation, uh funded by the Koch brothers has um, published uh, that many of the bills coming out of the House, uh, whether it's the Choice Act from Henserling, 
the tax reform proposals and health care proposals uh, pushed by Speaker Ryan uh, are following. And it is a, uh, you know, it, 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 it's, a, it's a limited government libertarian philosophy. Right. Um, and the real question is, you know, in a much more complicated economy than we had in the 19th century, I found it interesting that uh, President Trump in his speech the other night cited Lincoln, yes, Lincoln as defend yes, for yes. protectionist policies, mm -hmm. as defending a protectionist mm -hmm. policy. We were an agricultural society back in the right. 19th century. You know, 200 it was, years— It wasn't number one at the Chicago Convention of 1860, <laughs> was it? No, but, but we, were, we were running a mercantilist trade policy. We weren't a global power then. We were a small okay. little, you know, I, I, David, nation. i got to paint the picture, Please, folks. I'm sitting in our studio here at 59th and Lexington, and I'm in my usual turret. David sits across from me. Mr. Milstein is sitting to my right. David's left. In the chair to my left sat one of the major hitters of your world the day they reneged on the agreements on Chrysler. You were directly involved in those transactions. Moving forward with the Trump administration, are we going to get the rule of law and the rule of contract, or are we going to get some form of Chrysler-like chaos? Well, listen, you know, the, the government of the United States, the Congress of the United States and the president have the power to change the law uh, and to alter the playing field. Uh, and so, you know, one man's, one man's abdication of the rule of law is another man's reform. And so, you know, I think that you always have to understand which side of that argument people are on because there's behind that argument is usually an economic interest that's being exactly. promoted or gored. Yeah. Uh, you went from, from Lazard to, to government. And as we talk about this moment and we, we talk with numerous guests within government who've been in government about uh, the deficit when it comes to personnel at the deputy level at a lot of these institutions, at Treasury, at State. Yeah. Has it become harder for the government to entice people like you from the private sector to, to work for them? Is there something particular to this administration, or is it something more endemic? Uh, that that, that it's, it's, it's harder to make that case when it comes to doing the confirmation hearings, making the move. Is it less attractive to move from the private sector to the public sector? Yeah, so you, if, you're, if you're up for a position for confirmation, which constitutes you know, the top three levels of every cabinet department, um, you, know, you're, you have to be willing uh, to expose your entire... Uh, life, uh, your financial situation, your affiliations, your associations, the things you've written uh, to public scrutiny. And um, the process has become quite uncivil uh, because of the partisanship on the Hill. Uh, you know, often an individual's candidacy is uh, sacrificed on some pet peeve between two senators that they had nothing to do with. Um, and I think that process of confirm the confirmation process is clearly broken right. and needs to be fixed if we're going to get high quality people to go back yeah. into the government. So I think that's one of the problems. I think the other problem is I think the president has been it's very unclear what the president stands for. Yeah. Um, there are a couple of things that he stands for that, you know, some people find troubling. Some people find, um, you know, worthy of support. Um, but, you know, he stands for, uh, you know, tightened immigration. He stands for uh, more protectionist trade policy to promote manufacturing, a very relatively small part of the U.S. economy today. Um, you know, he stands for tax cuts, you know, to whom distributed, unclear. So with, un with a lack right. of clarity in policy, it's very hard to know what you're signing up sure. for, right? Uh, so I think that's the other problem. Well, I think until the administration really lays its cards on the right. table and announces clear policy directions— right. Uh, and the, how they want to implement them. It's very hard to get the soldiers to carry yes. uh, the water. We are out of time. 
we beg you to come back. Talk to Puerto Rico. There's so time. much to talk about. We didn't even get to Puerto Rico, and it's and it's happening right now. Yeah. And really, it's being a restructured. It, yeah. It's being and it's and it's happening in real time. Jim Milstein, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it, Milstein and Company, uh, this morning with his work on Wall Street and public service for years. Brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC. To now joining us, Michael Mayo, securities analyst. For those of you not up to speed, Mr. Mayo is an esteemed sell-side bank analyst. He's been doing it for a few years, and he was let go by his firm the other day. There was no ill will there. You didn't, like, steal the the whiskey or something out of the— <laughs> Not uh, this time. There, there was no, like, you know, Mike, you dastardly person, right? That's correct. That's correct. Okay. Here's the here's the history here, folks. We're going to talk about the state of global Wall Street and securities and analysts right now in our next section, Mr. Mayo. Uh, we'll talk about the banks. Your office now is 1117 Lexington Avenue, the Starbucks up there. <laughs> Mrs. Mayo has seen this a few times. I remember the day you were fired at Credit Suisse, and the entire industry was outraged that you were shown uh, the door. This is a recurring habit. <laughs> Can you explain to us the state of the securities analysis business now and where it's going to be in two years? Well, well, Tom, I think I'm ahead of the game. I've been fired about three times, but I've resigned five times. So I'm a little above, you know, 500. Uh, but are your up. kids going to be in this? Are my kids going to be in this business? Uh, I don't want my kids to be in this business. They don't want to be in this business. So that part's fine. I, surprising when I was fired in 2000 is, you know, you know I had a, a huge negative call on the bank stocks. The bank stocks went down, and I was fired anyway. The difference this time is the, I th think we've had the most bullish call on the banks over the last year, and the banks have led the stock market to, to record highs, and I get fired along with right. the U.S. research group. But back in 2000, the silver lining was I could hang out with my then-infant daughter. I'd go to Mommy and Me classes, but my wife has, has seen this movie before 17 years ago. Yeah, She's like... Um, well, we went to coffee bars in the East Village in the afternoon and, and saw movies. So she read me the riot act yesterday saying, I'm get not going to coffee job. bars. I'm not going to movies. I'm not going to take a walk around Central Park at lunchtime right. with you. I have my own life and circle and process. OK, but but within this is the tumult in the United Kingdom over how securities uh, sell side analysts are going to get paid. Yeah. You've got Abby, uh, Abby, uh, not, not Abby Joseph Cohen, Abby Johnson at Fidelity going to four dollars per trade. She's doing a massive layoff of fossils like you and me within fidelity where is the business in 24 months because it appears to me with clsa nobody's making money well i think the 80 20 rule always applies so you know 20 percent of the top performers provide 80 percent of the value so i think there's always room for those who are good at their job and so what what i've been proud of is holding truth to power you know holding management's accountable especially now that you're pulling back regulation regulation and overall market, especially in the banking industry, if that's going to transpire, then we collectively, especially investors, need to hold corporations, their managements and their boards of directors more accountable. So there will does, always be a need for what I do. Does anybody care anymore that you've got a a uh, fireplace mantle of II awards? <laughs> or is that just you and me waxing philosophical about the year 2000? 
people absolutely care. I've, I've gotten tons of, you know, emails and phone calls. Do you want to so, announce a new company you're working for today? It only takes you like 24 hours well, to I, get a new job. <laughs> I, I think the, the right perspective is I will listen to anything. This is, Look, but this is a reminder about how Wall Street works. I mean, you're in one day and literally over the course of three hours, you're out. So the rough and tumble world of Wall Street remains. Yeah. David, what's charming Has, about yeah. Mike is he still uses an HP 12C. <laughs> <laughs> Both of you guys. Uh, has it gotten more difficult to speak truth to power in the way that you do? to be irreverent, to, 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 to go to these meetings and make the cases that you make? I don't really think it's changed. I'm, I'm proud of being the only analyst who testified to uh, Congress in 2002 as part of the Sarbanes-Oxley, talked about conflicts of interest on Wall Street and the retribution for being aggressive with managements and holding them accountable. And if you're nice to the companies, you get all sorts of perks. They return your phone calls and they, you know, they go on the road with you and you're, they're like BFF. Um, and if you're aggressive with them, sometimes they don't return phone calls. You don't have meetings. They aren't nice to you. So I, I think it hasn't really changed as much as it, it should have. But we should learn a lesson from the financial crisis. The issue then is nobody was minding the store. The regulators weren't doing their job and investors weren't doing their job. And since that time, right. regulation has come very you know, heavy handed. Mm. If you're going to pull that back, investors need to step up and hold them accountable. On the, on the Bloomberg, there are 30 analysts covering Citigroup. I'll ask you the same question I would have asked you in 2000. Do we need 30 opinions on Fortress Corbett? Well, the 80-20 rule. So I agree. <laughs> I mean, so I mean, in any industry, you're going to have those who do a good job, and then there's going to be some dead weight. Are you going to be up at the Starbucks on Lexington here at about, you know, when are we off, David? 10 o'clock? 10 o'clock, yeah. 10 20. Are you going to buy him a coffee? Can we get an orange mocha frappuccino <laughs> with you? I'm going to check with my wife. And I, I, <laughs> assuming, I, I don't, actually, I think she's busy, so I, I'm open this We're afternoon. Open. former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System with Princeton University, Alan Blinder, joining us in our studios, uh, Michael McKee. Professor Blinder, I, I'm going to ask a question, right. and uh, Michael will jump in here. The perspective is the capitulation of those uh, saying that a Fed will wait. Ellen Zentner at Morgan Stanley shifts her call to March right now. Do you agree that a Fed should consider three rate hikes this year and then four in 2018? Uh, well, that's a little specific. First of all, I do think they're going to go up soon, and soon probably means this month. Um, three versus, I think of the three versus four question, and that's the right place to put it now. You know, it wasn't that long ago people were debating one, two, three. I think three versus four, given the state of the economy, is the right place to put the debate. I don't mm -hmm. put the question this year, um, three or four this year. Who knows about next right. year? The economy is looking very strong. We're staring in the face, although it looks to be delayed, of a large fiscal stimulus to a country, to an economy that doesn't need a fiscal uh, stimulus, and the Fed is going to have to offset some of it. Well, that, there's the dynamics, Michael McKee, that you're so good at in your different interviews, including James Bullard and the idea of a regime change. Michael McKee, jump in here with Professor Blinder. Well, the thing that struck me, Alan, and, and I've been saying this for a while, is we've criticized the Fed 
uh, a lot over the last couple of years for missing an opportunity when they had a chance to raise rates. And you've got the potential of a government shutdown on April 28th. You've got the French presidential vote out there. And I'm just wondering if a lot of what might be uh, going on in these Fed officials' minds is we've got a shot in March. Why not do it? Uh, why not avoid uh, things that could complicate our lives if we feel the level of economic activity is such that it justifies a rate increase anyway? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think the, the level of activity definitely justifies a rate increase, more than one, uh, in fact. And furthermore, what I did... I don't think the Fed's at all worried about, at least they shouldn't be worried about a government shutdown. Uh, Republicans only do that when a Democrat is the president. I, I have no, I put a zero probability on that. Yeah. But what's happened recently, so to speak, is that the likely date when we're going to know the size of the fiscal stimulus has been pushed back. So the, I think it was rational for the Fed to wait a bit for the clouds to disappear, and let's get a view of what the Trump fiscal policy is actually going to look like. At this point, if you're sitting on the Fed, you're saying, how long do we have to wait for this? We know it's going to be there. We don't know the size. We don't know the qualitative dimensions, but we know it's going to be there, and, uh, and we don't need it, mm -hmm. and uh, we ought to stop waiting. David? And what are you going to be listening for tomorrow from the Fed chair when she speaks uh, in Chicago in light of the groundwork we've seen laid here by uh, Dudley and Brainerd uh, and Kaplan this week? Well, I don't actually expect her to, to move the ball very much. I think given what uh, Janet Yellen has already said and what Dudley and others have said, they have succeeded in moving the market expectation in favor of uh, you know, to well over 50 percent odds of a rate hike in March. They don't like to rate, uh, raise rates when the market probability is like 20 percent and shock the markets. But they have to be pretty content where the market thinking is right now. They still got a couple of weeks to go. We could, for example, have a catastrophically bad jobs report of, uh, for February coming out in before the FOMC meeting. I don't expect, I certainly don't expect that. Right. But if that would happen, they'd probably want to postpone. D define the, catastrophically uh, bad for us here. Pardon me? D d define catastrophically bad. What, yeah, what would be something that would happen? Plus or minus, minus well, 5,000 non-farm payrolls. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'd say well under, well under 100,000, like 50,000 jobs or something like that. I don't expect to see a number like that. Neither do they. But I think they want to leave enough flexibility that if something wild happens, uh, they don't go. So I don't think she wants to say anything that will basically lock the Fed in. Big question is uh, surrounding all this is what's happening with inflation. And we did see uh, PCE rise uh, the mm -hmm. last month, and we're just under 2% uh, right now. Uh, but a lot of that is because energy prices went back up, and you know, right. there's always the, dis the dispute about how much weight you put on that. So yeah. it, 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 we've talked a lot about the, the fact there seems to be an underlying difference to the dynamic of inflation. Is, is there enough inflation danger that they feel like they have to move? I think there is. Now, the key thing, Mike, is move how much. There's not so much inflation danger that the Fed feels, God, we get a get this funds rate up 100 or 150 basis points right. quickly. It's nothing like that. 
They're still into gradualism, which has been Janet Yellen's mantra for a long time mm. now. But there is an inflation uh, danger. Uh, you know, a small, you know, I use the word danger. Well, you use the word danger. Yeah. There's, there's an inflation well, risk. Let's do that. Let's let's put words in the vice chairman's yeah. mouth. We'll come back with <laughs> Professor Blinder. Michael McKee, why don't you pick it up with Alan Blinder? And, of course, the backdrop here is a September crowd shifts to March, and we just saw that with Morgan Stanley an hour ago. Yeah, Ellen Zettner and Matt Hornback from Morgan Stanley shifting their call. Major change for them. Uh, one of the things, uh, Alan, that they – uh, suggest will be a result of a faster Fed tightening cycle is uh, more quick. They will get to bringing the balance sheet down, addressing the balance sheet more quickly, they think, you know, beginning of 2018. There's a lot of debate about how important that is going to be and how much market disruption there's going to come from addressing the balance sheet. What do you think? I think its importance is easy to exaggerate. And the thing I'm most sure about is there will be minimal market disruption. And the reason for that is really simple. The Fed is going to uh, do handstands not to pull any surprises on anybody. This balance sheet, when they're ready, is going to be drawn down on a regular pre-announced schedule that everybody in the market knows about. They'll know it's coming, sort of, so to speak, auction by auction. Uh, and markets are pretty good at digesting things like that, even if the sums are large. These are huge markets, remember. The key thing is not to surprise anybody, and that's the last thing the Fed's going to want to do. Interesting uh, point that uh, Ellen and Matt made in an earlier note uh, a week or so ago. They don't think the Fed has to do anything to the Treasury part of the balance sheet because if you once you take out the the uh, mortgages uh, and the stuff that expires right away, you're not that much bigger than what a normal balance sheet size would be for this size of the economy. That you would grow into it very quickly. Yeah. Uh, do you agree with that? Yeah, I think that could be right. I mean. The Fed is, has still not, unless they're, they've actually made a decision they're keeping it under wraps, but I think they still have not come close to deciding how large a balance sheet they want to wind up with. You may recall Ben Bernanke blogged the other day, or the other week, about you know, a pretty big balance sheet at the end, much bigger than it was before Lehman Brothers crashed. So, so yes, the... The drawdown may not be that huge. We're still probably talking about a couple of trillion, but this is a very big market, and it'll happen slowly, not rapidly. Well, Bernard saying uh, yesterday at Harvard, uh, near-term risks to the United States from abroad appear to have diminished. Fold what we're seeing here in the U.S. into the, the global context for us, if you would, Professor Blinder. How much uh, is this Fed paying attention to what's going on overseas at this point? Well, they always pay attention, but... Frankly, we elites uh, usually exaggerate how important the rest of the world is to the Federal Reserve's decisions. I mean, it does. If it's a big deal coming from abroad, then of course uh, it's a consideration in the Fed's policy. But things are happening in other countries all the time, just as they are here. And for the most part, their impact on the U.S. economy and therefore on what the Fed wants to do with monetary policy is quite small. So 
I don't think there's anything right now that's uh, a big, big deal on the friend, on the Fed's radar screen. When we get closer to the date, they're going to be watching the French election the way they were watching the Brexit mm-hmm. vote. And the, the Brexit vote turned out to be no big deal for the Fed. A very big deal for England, but no big deal for the Fed. Uh, something like that could easily happen again with uh, France, for example. If uh, if Janet Yellen were here, she would probably be boxing our ears. Are we efforting? Excuse me. Are we efforting Janet Yellen for the last block she of the would, hour? She would be saying, and this, and I would include you, Ellen. That you, you guys are focusing on when you're going to ra- we're going to raise rates, and we should be focusing on when we're going to stop what the terminal rate is. Do you think the idea that you know they want to go in March, uh, and the level of economic activity we have seen indicates any real steeper? Uh, trajectory or higher terminal rate, higher neutral rate, or is it just a question of um, this is the time that's available for them to act? I think it's more a steeper trajectory than a higher neutral rate. I don't. Well, if the Fed has seen anything in recent months suggesting that the neutral rate is higher than they thought two months ago, I'm not aware of it, and I don't know what it would be. So I don't think the so-called terminal rate, or we don't want to call it, has moved very much. But I, I think the speed, the likely speed, has uh, uh, changed because of the strength of the economy and, as I said before, because of the prospects for fiscal stimulus. Look, we went through something like this in a grand, grand scale with Reagan and Volcker. Uh, you guys may remember that. A couple of guys that are yeah, familiar. Yeah, some of us too. You know, young people don't. But, but a serious collision, that was a really serious collision between right. monetary and fiscal policy. I think we're looking at a smaller scale version of that. Okay, but within the model that's in Blinder, Ballmall Blinder, in your classic textbook, where we are right now, is that ISLM, aggregate supply demand, Euclidean model, <laughs> is that in place right now? Or are you guys flying blind yeah. theoretically? I think, frankly, that model has done decently. I think it's done least well on inflation. I think according to that, if I may call it, textbook model, we should probably be looking at higher inflation rates now. Not super high, but higher than they are now. But inflation is rising. Wage inflation is especially rising. And, uh, you know, just in general, I think as a as, – not as a literal description, but as a framework for thinking about things. I think that model has survived uh, this recovery modestly well. Okay. Uh, Professor, thank you so much for being with us today. He's a former vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System, Alan Blinder of Princeton. And for those of you who need to pick up a textbook, what is it, like 800 pages, Michael? <laughs> the 4,000th edition of Ballmall Ball and Blinder. It's, it's sort of like the I have King one James on my, Bible. On my you know? bookcase. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.
brought to you by Bank of America, Merrill Lynch, dedicated to bringing our clients insights and solutions to meet the challenges of a transforming world. That's the power of global connections. Merrill Lynch, Pierce, Fenner & Smith, Incorporated member, SIPC.